Hey everyone, this is Josh with Spurgeon Maniacs to share how you guys can partner with us. First off, thank you to everyone who has been listening to our show and to those of you that came to our conference. We are gearing up to expand what we do for you guys, but we need your help. Go on over to patreon.com forward slash Spurgeon Maniacs. We would love to have your support to continue doing this podcast, conferences, and so much more as we grow. Also, give this podcast a five-star review on Apple or Google Podcasts. That's how more and more people are going to find what we're doing over here. Lastly, come find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and don't forget to email us at podcast at SpurgeonManiacs.com. Now, here is your episode. Charles Spurgeon was a man that God used, and millions are still being impacted by his kingdom work. As we examine his life and ministry, we hope to strengthen today's church and bring glory to Christ. My name is Joel Littlefield, lead pastor of New City Church in Bath, Maine, and I'm joined by my brother in Christ, Josh Whitney. Welcome to the Spurgeon Maniacs podcast. Spurgeon Maniacs, this is Josh Whitney running solo again. We were just down at the Pillar Unite conference in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and down there we were able to interview a great person, that's Alex DePrima, a pastor down there as well as an author, um, has his doctorate work on Spurgeon and has released a recent book, Spurgeon and the Poor. And we were very excited to be able to interview him while down there at the conference, our, our first live face-to-face interview. We're really excited about this one. I'm solo. Joel is leaving um, as we speak, or as you're listening to this. He is heading down to Nepal with some people from our church as well as some other people. Uh, so I'm just recording this little intro for that interview so that way you guys can hear a little bit from us this will be the end of season one it's a little bummer to to end it now but we figured it'd be best to do so with everything that joel has going on and then we really want to bring back season two with a lot better production a lot more intent we're very much looking forward to bringing that what that even is going to look like so pray for us we've got a lot of stuff in the works we're really excited to move forward but in the meantime we've got this great interview i hope you all are blessed by it and until season two we'll see you guys later are, how, how many interviews have you done on this book? I'm real curious because I listened to your Nine Marks one with Dever. Oh, um, probably ten or twelve. Ten or twelve. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So I and I thought so. And I, first of all, the Nine Marks one, I believe that's what introduced me more to, more to the content of this book. And I but I know, I know you've got another one. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the at the end of the podcast, we'll have you share a little bit about what's next. But mm-hmm. I definitely want to focus on. On these, but first of all, let's uh, for our listeners. Uh, we have Alex DePrima in the office or in the room. We're actually at Southeastern, yeah. so this is not our normal studio. No, which is but cool. it sounds pretty good. 
Yeah. It's good acoustics. Is this like when college game day goes to different campuses, <laughs> yeah. you know? You yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so we're we're down at the, at the Pillar Conference at Southeastern, and so we were able to uh, pull aside Alex DePrima and have some time with him. So, um, brother, thank you for being with us, man. Oh, it's a pleasure, brothers. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're glad you're here. Um, just would love to start by you getting to share a little bit about yourself. Um, what are you doing currently to serve the Lord? How's maybe introduce your family, wife, kids? Yeah. Uh, just a brief recap of who you are. Certainly, yeah. Uh, Alex DePrima, pastor in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, Emmanuel Church. Uh, that was a church, by God's grace, we planted a little over six years ago. And um, have been years of great blessing from the Lord. We thank God for where he's placed us. My wife is Jenna. Uh, we've been married about 10 years. And I have three kids, ages five, four, and two. Nice. Uh, busy season, but a season that we love. We love our routine. We love our church family. I love what I get to do. I'm tasked primarily with um, oversight of the pulpit. I do most of the preaching. Yeah. And then uh, a lot of counseling, discipleship, mm-hmm. um, pour a lot of attention into the elders' meetings and things like that. And more recently, being involved in training younger men, mm-hmm. and the Lord's brought a surprising number of men training for ministry to our church. And so for the first time, we've actually organized a, the beginnings of an internship program this past year, which went awesome. well and encouraged by that, and something obviously Spurgeon gave a lot of his attention to as yeah. well. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, and I'm thankful on the side, I get to do things like this and write books, and um, uh, that's just a hobby and a joy and a, a small ministry. And so, yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool, man. Did you have a brother or family member planting this year? Uh-huh, yeah, my younger brother, uh, Zach. Well, and my older brother's with him. So oh, okay. I'm the second of seven kids, uh, sandwiched between two brothers on either end. Um, so my older brother, Anthony, and my younger brother, Zach, uh, are planting in North uh, Atlanta. So they're currently members. Uh, my younger brother's an elder. My older brother's a deacon at Mount Vernon Baptist Church. Hmm. Nice. I think we all know Aaron Menikoff. Aaron Menikoff. Uh, Aaron's a dear friend. And uh, those those brothers are there. They're planting, God willing. Um, we're recording this, what are we, in October yeah. uh, 2023. They'll be uh, covenanting together in January of 2024. That's their plan. Mm, so That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, Very yeah. cool. Zach, Zach DePrima and myself, we get mixed up all the time. But, was yeah. he on the screen yesterday? He was, yeah. That's what I thought. And I could Planning see, I pillow, saw the yeah. family resemblance. I thought, that's got to um, be, that's got to be. And, and the listeners of this podcast might be interested. If you are if you do a deep dive on Spurgeon, you're really kind of all in on Spurgeon. Yeah. You may know that as he was in Cambridge as a teenager, not obviously at the university, not a student at the university, but in the area, mm-hmm. uh, uh, he was influenced by Charles Simeon. Okay. Who would yeah. have been a great evangelical Anglican preacher of mm-hmm. the previous generation. Mm. So Simeon dies right after Spurgeon was born. Uh, Simeon Trust, that sure, Charles Simeon. Simeon Trust, you know? yeah. So uh, Charles Simeon spent his whole career in Cambridge at Holy Trinity Church, 54 years or so. Mm. Had a remarkable ministry. More pastors need to know about Charles Simeon. Mm. Well, I bring that up because my brother Zach is doing his PhD with Michael Haken looking at Charles Simeon. Oh, that's mm. cool. Uh, and Simeon, uh, in fact, the Lost Sermons project with Spurgeon, yeah. yep. they were able to trace a good bit of influence of Simeon on Spurgeon, some places mm. where he's actually taking whole skeleton outlines from Simeon and using mm. them for his own sermons, not like in a <laughs> plagiarizing saying. kind of way, sure. but taking yeah. the outline, yeah. you know. And well, we found that, because we we've been going through this last season through Lost Yeah, through volume lost one. Yeah. And just kind of covering the outlines. And um, this was this is volume one. Yeah, and, and it, it's not uncommon for it to, to make that note that yeah. this was actually 
somebody else's outline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, S- Simeon didn't, he doesn't have lots of popular works that you would read, but he has this massive set of maybe 21 volumes of skeleton outlines of the whole Bible. He yeah, goes through cool. every text of the Bible. So now it reads more like a homiletical commentary, more yeah. or less. But um, yeah, it was a big influence on Spurgeon, and he admired Simeon very much. So That's cool. So Zach loves to remind me that my guy, Spurgeon, looked yeah, up your guy. his guy, <laughs> Simeon. So, That's awesome. Yeah, That's, cool. right. That's really awesome. That's man. funny. Um, this is a show about Spurgeon, but we, we want people to really meet, meet and encounter Christ and all these. So before you even tell us, and, we, and Josh will get into the first question on Spurgeon, but exalt Christ in mm-hmm. your testimony. Like, how did you yeah. come to know Christ? When did you come to know him as Savior? Yeah. Just briefly share that testimony. Sure. Well, I, guys, I'm covered kind of head to toe in God's mercy and grace um, and all kinds of privilege in my background. I grew up in very much in the kind of theological heritage that Spurgeon would represent. Yeah. It was a uh, 1689 Reformed Baptist setting of the far more, um, the warmer, more tender sort, not the kind of cranky sort. Sure. Um, yeah. Nate, get, that Nate was talking about. Yeah, 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 Nate. Well, and I appreciate Nate's little turn of phrase. We want to be warm and reformed. Like yeah. That. yeah, that was the context I was reared in. Mm. That book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, yeah. oh, so many have read. Yep. That um, presentation of Christ was the kind of presentation of Christ I was given as a child mm. through my primary preaching pastor, uh, my parents, Sunday school teachers. And so I was converted at 10 years old through the preaching of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was a period of conviction of sin um, for about a year, would often cry myself to sleep, mm. understood, believing myself to be under the wrath of God and did not contemplate, you know, is there a way out or something like that? I just felt judged. Mm-hmm. And there was one night in February of uh, 2001, I, uh, I was quite upset over my sins. I went downstairs, this is about 10, 11 o'clock at night, there was a Blue Trinity hymnal on the table. I opened mm. it up to the very middle of it. If you go to the very middle of the Blue Trinity hymnal, it's hymn number 370. Uh, we have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, spread mm. the tidings, all that. I didn't grow up singing that song, I didn't sure. know that song. But the idea that um, I could cry out to Christ for mercy, that he's ready to save, that came to me mm. in power. And then, you know, I say randomly, uh, turn to hymn 731 in that hymnal, which is, and can it be? I was turned to the wow. back of it now, you know. Wow. Mm. And I think was converted while reading that hymn. That's and um, Yeah, <laughs> reaching out to Christ. And again, the weight of my sins was overwhelming. Mm. And I, I felt on the precipice of hell itself. And then all of a sudden, through the ministry of those hymns, and then of course, you know, hundreds of sermons I'd heard then at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the grace of God became clear to me. Mm. Uh, forgiveness that can be found in Christ. And Were you born in like 1620 or something? No. I mean, like, uh, that's uh, a testimony you read out of the Puritans. Yeah, yeah. yeah under the, well, no, but, beautiful, man. Yeah, that's well, the, the context I was in treasured the Puritans, treasured yeah. those old evangelical hymns, treasured Spurgeon. Spurgeon was always in the background in the yeah. church I grew up in. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, grew in grace and followed Christ, became a churchman eventually, and... Mm. Um, was introduced to Spurgeon fairly young and was grateful to make him part of my life later on. Wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. That's so good. All right, so we have, jumping right into this, how did you first get introduced to Spurgeon? Well, it would have been through my pastors. They quoted him quite often. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, two wonderful ministers. We had a morning and evening service. And when I say that, don't think like churches today that you have kind of the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock, sure. but it's the same yep. service. Yep. Completely different services, kind of like a Spurgeon's church, different sermons, different liturgies. Wow. And uh, in the evening service was a man named Bill Hughes who was a, a Englishman himself, and he would sometimes do biographical sketches on different um, leaders from the past, and mm-hmm. he would do Spurgeon. Spurgeon was the guy he, he loved the most. And 
Uh, and so I tell people Spurgeon was kind of like um, background music in my childhood, <laughs> yeah. going on all the time. Yeah. I don't know if like in your home, your parents had their music that they listened yeah. to, and it, you kind of eventually... Yeah, Keith Green and Amy Grant. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Well, <laughs> Steve uh, Green. For my family, it was like Led Zeppelin <laughs> and Pink Floyd. And I remember being like 16 and realizing, actually, these old records my dad was playing, they're pretty cool. You know, they right. became my own music. Sure. Spurgeon was that way. He was always around, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, being read. In fact, this is really sweet. When I was 14, my family moved from the church I was in in South Florida to South Carolina, and that British pastor, Bill Hughes, wanted to give me a gift as a going-away gift, and he gave me the three volumes of the Treasury of David. So that <laughs> might have been the first Virgin books I, I owned. My grandmother, when I was freshman in college, got me a five-volume set. I think Baker put out a five-volume set of Spurgeon sermons. And um, so that was somehow I got introduced to him. But I didn't really start reading a lot about his biography or even reading much into sermons until probably after college. That's when I really yeah. began to give a lot of attention to Spurgeon. Was was there a shift then as why you started doing a lot of scholarly work in it, or there was an opportunity? Well, that's, that's a very prosaic story. Um, yeah. yeah, so I had finished seminary. I had no plans to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. My parents, neither of them graduated high school, blue-collar kind of upbringing. And um, I finished, I was, I was on the younger end. I knew I wanted to plant a manual church in Winston-Salem. The church I was in wanted to plant me, but I was only like 23 when I finished. They wanted mm-hmm. just more seasoning more and growth yeah. and all that. So I was married at that point and had the time and the money. Um, I wasn't doing anything especially important. I was working a job. Mm-hmm. But it was I knew I was going to have a couple more years before I planted. And so at that time, uh, Nathan Finn, who was a professor here at Southeastern, a historian here, now is at uh, North Greenville. A university in South Carolina, he approached me about doing a PhD, thought that, that I would enjoy it. And um, I never thought about that. And I said, well, if I do a PhD, I'd like to do it on someone big, someone who could occupy my attention for a lifetime. A lot of guys approach the PhD, they really want to break new ground somewhere mm-hmm. on some like, you know, Baptist in, you know, the backwater of Alabama somewhere that no one knows about, yeah. or some small little town in England that they want to sort of recover or retrieve. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, God bless the brothers that do that, but I sure. wasn't interested in that at all. <laughs> I, wanted, yeah. I wanted a big guy that I could, with a massive corpus and someone people would want to know a whole lot more about. And um, and it had to fit, of course, in Nathan's expertise. And he said, well, he said, you'd be surprised to learn very little has been written on Spurgeon. So there's lots of hagiography, lots of popular yeah. biographies, but very little on a doctoral level. So when I started, I think there was maybe between 15 and 20 dissertations in the 130 years after his death. I mean, just very little. You compare it to a guy like Edwards, you're looking at, you know, three, four, five hundred. So hmm. I think part of the reason for that is Spurgeon was not, and some people might get upset that I say this, but he wasn't technically a theologian right. in the classical hmm. sense. And scholars want to study theologians who make contributions to divinity. Right. So lots of people write on Owen, lots of people write on Luther, lots of people write on Calvin, lots of people write on Edwards. Uh, but to write on a you know popular you know Baptist preacher you know um, that's just not something hmm. scholars are looking to do. So hmm. then I met uh, Christian George and Dr. George told me, I said Alex, I could put a blindfold on you and spin you around ten times and you could walk in any direction and probably write on that yeah. in the world of spiritual <laughs> studies. So I had my man. I knew I mean, Spurgeon was to me like Braveheart. He was like the, mm-hmm. the superhero, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. And um, and I found his ministry just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And when I learned, yeah, you could write on almost anything you want, um, I thought, yeah, let's do that. So that's, 
and then it was reading Spurgeon sermons for five years and mm. you know dissertations and articles and it was a blast, man. I loved it. Just, nice. At the very end, I was getting a little bit you know burned out, and that was. It, it's kind of like you want to leave one or two bites on your plate. That's a sign of a really good meal that you're full. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It was like that when I got the last two or three chapters of my dissertation, I was like, okay, I need to get this done. Yeah, but mm. up until then, it was nothing but a pure delight. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it was great. Well, we're glad you did, and uh, this book. Um, we're holding, well, I'm holding in my hand, Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. I'm glad it's in the world. I'm glad you yeah. put it out there and that uh, you put the time in. So thank you for doing that. But th- So this is put out by Ref- Reformation Heritage Books. And uh, we want to ask you just a couple questions about this and then allow you to just elaborate so our listeners can learn a little bit about it and then be really inspired to get the book, mm-hmm. study a little bit more about Spurgeon. And ultimately, the goal would be to, I uh, like how uh, Jeff Chang, we're looking through Spurgeon to see Christ. Amen. So, um, yeah. So with, with this book in mind, who did you really write it for? Like what, yeah. what was the inspiration for it? Well, which mm-hmm. we kind of got that already, but who's it for? Who should buy this book? Why should people read it? Okay. Generally the, the, the broad answer is for pastors and church members. Okay. It's a book for the church. It's not primarily for scholars. Now that said, there's like 600 footnotes in it. So I'm trying to drop hints to mm. scholars who want to go, you know, follow the, the crumbs somewhere. Yeah. But it was, it's not a, it meant to be an academic book. It's for pastors especially and, and interested church members. It's a book for the church. Now, more narrowly, I would say, so the book is Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. It's about how Spurgeon understood the relationship between the preaching of the gospel and its effect in our lives mm. and the, um, the necessity of good works of benevolence and mercy ministry yeah. in the ministry of the life of the individual Christian and also in the ministry of the local church. How do we think about gospel proclamation and social ministry and their relationship to one another? And it's an effort to retrieve Spurgeon as a faithful model mm-hmm. to kind of show us how to do that. Well, I hardly need to say in our context today, it's a super hot topic, very super controversial. Hot, yeah. And so I was, uh, I hoped the book would speak to folks on uh, kind of two different groups. The first would be, uh, I think Spurgeon does provide a corrective to those who are approaching social ministry. Mm-hmm out of a kind of a left-leaning framework, yeah. a social gospel framework, um, or those that are kind of adjacent to it more than that. Right. Um, those who are are um, maybe in danger of missional drift or seeing mm. social involvement, political activism, uh, benevolence work as sort of uh, primary or almost near sure. primary uh, to the mission of the local church. Uh, Spurgeon is someone who's heavily involved in social ministry, but he's going to emphasize that the um, what's in the foreground, what is the, the primary thing in the mission of the local church is the preaching of the gospel to the yeah. building up of healthy churches. To those on my right, not on my right, those where I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, just personally, guys, I have had a concern that in the streams I grew up in, the streams I'm a part of now, we'll just call them Calvinistic circles, Reformedish circles. I don't mind saying I'm... I didn't really, wasn't reared in the Young Restless and Reform Movement, but right. the stream I was in eventually got caught up in that sure. larger tributary. Um, I have been concerned that we have not been as well known for mercy ministry mm-hmm. and social mm-hmm. ministry as our forebears, as sure. men like Spurgeon. And I, I speculate in the appendix like a lot of other reform groups in the past. If you look at reform confessions of the 16th, 17th centuries, often articles on care for the poor and involvement among the needy. You look at almost any church covenant in this country uh, prior to 1950, there's going to be a statement about our resolve to help the poor in our community. Uh, so uh, I had a concern to retrieve a model here for Calvinistic reform folks to say, hey, 
there was a larger social conscience and there was a larger commitment to mercy ministry mm-hmm. and involvement on poor and needy and oppressed peoples uh, in a way that isn't woke, in a yeah. way that isn't a social gospel, mm-hmm. in a way that isn't um, you know selling the next generation down the road to theological liberalism, in a way that is actually uh, coupled with a robust uh, doctrinal vision yeah. uh, that is conservative, that is orthodox, that is known for a gospel proclamation, that is centered on the proper mission of the church and the preaching of the gospel to the building up of healthy churches, and yet had this place for this uh, large social ministry, this large social conscience. Uh, so the desire was to speak into kind of that awesome. that tension a little bit as well. I think you I think you hit the nail on the head, man. I really yeah. do. And it's very readable, it's accessible, um, and I think I think you did an excellent job mm. hitting that goal. I appreciate the encouragement. So yeah, that's uh, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. Well, I was just thinking um, in, in line of that and kind of seeing that difference between what what Christians should be doing in their mercy ministries. Um, how did Spurgeon's mercy ministry compare to that of the world around him? Or was there a lot of mercy, obviously not mercy ministry, but was there a lot of um, philanthropy and stuff and had those two things compare to one another? question, yeah. There would be, um, so first of all, I would say in the Victorian world of London, yeah. It was much more common for churches to carry out the kind of vision he's promoting. Mm-hmm. Churches to see themselves as, in some ways, responsible to help needy people in their communities mm. uh, through ministries of mercy, uh, in bringing the gospel to them, in bringing um, the loving Christian community around them to help them and support them and to hopefully draw them into the life of the church. That wasn't terribly uncommon, so I could list lots of churches that were doing that and, mm-hmm. and major figures that were involved in that. Um, uh, at the same time, too, I'll just mention you know, part of the social situation in England that's different from our social situation now, I could even say our political situation now, is that many of the kinds of ministries Spurgeon's Church started are now things that are carried out by the central government, at mm-hmm. least in the United States. So there was no welfare, very little in the way of, of social welfare in mm-hmm. you know, the 1850s, 1860s in England. There wasn't a system of public education until the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the safety net was the largesse of churches mm-hmm. and, and nonprofits and charity groups and things like that. So you had lots of Christians kind of uh, meeting those needs. London is the biggest city in the world at that time, uh, pretty much the whole 19th century. And um, the challenges of urbanization and industrialization are what ultimately I think shift. I think I think people realize the church and other such groups are not sufficient to handle the extreme deprivation created by some of these other things going on socially, and that's when the government began to step in more. Um, but I would say you ask how much is Spurgeon's work like that of others. Spurgeon is going to do everything sort of bigger and brighter and better right. than everybody yeah. else, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The scale is just insane. So. By 1884, there's 66 benevolent institutions operating out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Mm. He's doing it to a degree that's just sort of beyond what most, A, are capable of, or even if they were, are actually doing. Uh, We have accounts of how on Sunday afternoons, you have maybe 6,000 there on Sunday mornings. Um, In the afternoon, about 1,000 members would just go out into the community and host what we would think of today now as backyard Bible clubs and sidewalk Sunday schools and preaching stations and soup kitchens and all that kind of stuff in these needy neighborhoods. And then they try to bring these folks back for service on Sunday Sunday night. Yeah. So uh, Spurgeon is very much speaking to his generation about, yes, we we, we have been doing this. We should be doing this. We need to be doing this more. And um, are there ways we can um, better steward our resources and our energies and leverage what we have to help needy people in our communities, show them the love of Christ, draw them into the life of the local church, 
uh, practically benefit them and meet their needs and things like that. So, mm. um, yes, sadly, by the time you get to World War One, World War Two, that vision is—it's um, not totally lost, but it's—it's right. it's been greatly diminished in yeah. English evangelical life and in American evangelical life. And some of that, guys, I think, has to do with the rise of theological liberalism, mm-hmm. yeah. social activism, social involvement begins to be seen as kind of an impulse of liberalism, and that's a longer conversation, but that's yeah. not as much a factor in Spurgeon's day. Sure. Yeah. I'm starting, I'm st- in my mind, I'm starting to go down that track, and I'm, I'm trying to forcibly stop so, myself from just, going down just there. Just think about it now, yeah. this side of the Walter Rauschenbusch social gospel, Hell's Kitchen, 1930s, 40s thing, we are on this side of the modernist fundamentalist controversies. Mm. If you begin to erode Christian doctrine such that there is no penal substitutionary atonement, we don't believe in the eternality and existence of hell, we don't believe in the virgin birth or the miracles, like you just start to you know, rip the heart out of Christianity, but you still want to be Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Jay Gresham Machen, Christian and liberalism, he's trying to say, this thing you're calling Christian isn't Christian, call it something else. Mm-hmm. You can go and do it somewhere, but it's not Christianity anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, all these mainline churches wanted to still be Christian. Well, what's left if you take away the central orthodox doctrines of the faith? Mm-hmm not much more than a kind of sentimental love for neighbor and we can do good in our communities and that kind of a thing. Have uh, you so, been to Maine? Uh, yeah. Right. Oh my well, gosh. Exactly so. I was mean, just there easily. This is exactly yeah. what is. It's all over New England. Yeah. 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 And so what I, what I think that did, well, I could, I could just anecdotally, guys, if in your church you have a 19-year-old who's really excited about building wells in Africa mm-hmm. and really taken up with, you know, social involvement and things like that, um, I'll be honest, as a pastor, there's a little red flag in my head to say, I need to play defense against this turning into a slide mm-hmm. toward theological liberalism, sure. beginning to foreground social ministry and bringing the kingdom on earth and mm-hmm. you know feeding all the hungry as kind of the main goal here. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a whole historical context that I think makes us more sensitive to that, understandably so. Yeah. We do see often a fascination with social ministry as a kind of liberal instinct or something that could be the slippery slope toward theological liberalism for a lot of people. That wasn't as much a concern in Spurgeon's day. Um, well, it's uh, timely that we're, I mean, the social, the slippery slope can go so far mm-hmm. that you end up with a situation like with Al Mohler and uh, Andy Stanley right now. Oh my goodness, yeah. You know, exactly where you're, so we exactly now have so. uh, thousands and thousands of people that follow Andy Stanley that are watching this so-called pastor that is, He's in that. He's down that slippery slope. Yeah, and the compromises. Well, this is a bit of what if, if you or your listeners have read Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert's book, "What Is the Mission of the Church?" Right. They're right. playing defense against a kind of emerging social gospel, yeah. um, or kind of a new iteration on it mm-hmm. uh, in the like 2005 to 2012 era. Lots of conferences talking about that kind of thing. And they're trying to say, hey, don't forget, what is the primary mission of the church? I think Spurgeon would wholeheartedly affirm what is the mission of the church. I think, though, he is not having to play defense in the same way we now have to Mm. because of the way theological liberals have sort of claimed social involvement is sort of their thing. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we've ceded that to them. I think maybe we're somewhat responsible. Uh, Probably at both. Yeah, Yeah, probably probably both. both. So let's try to do two more questions. I, I wish we had an hour to do this, man. But yeah. Let's. So I, I want to do this just to give people a little bit of a hook to get the book. Because something that stood out to me uh, in in reading it was a story of a man witnessing Spurgeon uh, oh, yeah. ministering to somebody in a hospital. Yeah. Uh, Would you share that? And uh, just brief as yeah. well as briefly as you think you can. I think um, it's how I opened the book. Yeah. So uh, there's a temperance activist who was a good friend of Spurgeon's named John John B. Guff. He was an American. And he came to visit Spurgeon, wanted to see the famous tabernacle. And one of Spurgeon's leading 
benevolent institutions was the Stockwell Orphanage, mm-hmm. cared for 1,500 orphans over the course of his life. Again, when I was a kid, I never knew that. Yeah. I discovered that in my, like, just a lot of people don't know mm-hmm. he was this great philanthropist. Anyway, and he's so famous that guys are coming from America to tour the orphanage and find out what he's doing. Could we do this back in the States and that kind of thing? I think it's the 1979, Guff goes, visits Spurgeon at the Tabernacle. He had seen him preach there many times. And then he asked Spurgeon, I really want to tour the orphanage. And so he and Spurgeon go over to the orphanage. And they're walking around, and he's showing them the grounds and talking about the vision for the orphanage. And at that time, some nurse or teacher or someone comes to him and says, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, uh, there's this boy in the infirmary. Um, it, it appears he's not going to get better. He, he's probably going to die. And Spurgeon, a little bit flustered, says, you know, I, I need to go and do this. I need to go be with this boy. Um, you know, Mr. Guff, you're welcome to come with me, you know, if, you, if you'd like, but I need to go see this boy. And so Spurgeon goes, and in the account, so we have Goff's account of this yeah. this uh, interchange, and Spurgeon just so tenderly, mm-hmm. he's by the boy's bedside praying over him, encouraging mm-hmm. him, asking the nurse to bring him, like, presents and gifts and stuff. Oh, it's the most tender scene. Mm-hmm. And the, the way the way Goff records it, records the, the, the way Spurgeon spoke to this this poor boy who he had saved, who he had rescued from the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Goff says, kind of at the end of his account, uh, he said something like, I don't have it before me, but he says, I have, I have seen Mr. Spurgeon uh, hold 6,500 persons in a breathless interest. Yeah. I have seen him as a man universally beloved, you know, by thousands upon thousands of people. But as I witnessed this man's sitting beside the bedside of a dying orphan child who his benevolence had saved, he was to me a greater and grander man than when swaying the mighty multitude at his will. Mm. Uh, I, actually, the original title of this book was A Greater and Grander Man. Oh, no kidding. Spurgeon something or other, yeah. Uh, we wanted to put Spurgeon in the, the main title. But mm. um, that to me, in many ways, the book is about, the, I think I go on to say this book is about the greater and grander man. Yeah, it is about the man who was known not only as the great gospel preacher, but it's not to say that his social ministry is better than his gospel proclamation, not at all, right. but to show how that deed ministry yeah. sweetened his word ministry and gave, I, I think, lends greater credence to his word ministry. I think Spurgeon's credibility as a gospel preacher is enhanced and adorned and sweetened Absolutely. by appreciating mm. the good works he engaged in himself, in the, and then yeah. he pushed the members of the church to engage in. He showed the power of the gospel yeah in the transformed lives of his people mm-hmm. and how they sought to help needy people and, and return grace and kindness and mercy toward others. So, yeah, that's something of kind of the, the hook for the book and how it's we wonderful. start and where we go from there. You know. Really, really good hook. And uh, I don't think people could read this book with, a, with an honest uh, attitude and, and not be inspired to mm-hmm. reevaluate, one, their own mercy ministry deeds. Are, am I living out the, the gospel in my community? But then also churches. I, I've already been thinking, like, what are... What are the things in our church, our, our family, our church family? How can we um, not so much do more for the sake of more, but are we are we even doing this? You know, and so it's good. The questions that I was asking as I'm reading the book, I think probably are the questions that you've you hoped people would consider in their yeah. heart. Well, and I'll say Spurgeon. That's exactly I think the effect Spurgeon would want to have on churches like ours. He's not about widespread political social change. Sure. You know, and I mean that can happen, and that's great. Right. But but pastors and individual local churches thinking, how can we as a church be known for good in our communities? Yeah. How could we populate our lives with hundreds of acts of good works that are just helping people and again giving credibility to the gospel we preach and honoring God and showing forth his character. Yeah. That's what he's after primarily. That's awesome. And that's what I'm after in the book. Yeah. Amen. Mm. Let's Amen. do one more and we'll we'll close it up. So Spurgeon, 
and you, you referenced this as a chapter title, was Spurgeon a political preacher? Oh, yeah. Does he, did he preach on politics? Was he, um, or was it more of a sub part of just the natural outflowing of the gospel? Or how'd yeah, that look? If there's anyone listening to this podcast who wants to write a dissertation on Spurgeon, I think a, a, a dissertation on A, his actual politics, and his public theology, political theology, would be fascinating. Mm. Um, there's a lot of debate about this between people who think about Spurgeon right on Spurgeon. I would be in the camp of thinking that many people have overstated the degree to which Spurgeon was interested in politics. Mm. He almost never preaches on politics. I mean, yeah. practically never. Didn't he give a challenge? Like, hey, oh, yeah. hey, look at all my sermons, see if you can find one yeah, yeah, that doesn't exactly. come out of the natural text. Yeah, yeah, like he would say, like he preaches against slavery some, a few times. Sure. You know, but he'd say, that's, that's a religious issue. I mean, that's politics getting on our territory now, you know. Sure. Mm. But you're not going to see him uh, advocating for candidates from the pulpit. You're not going to see him. Well, yeah, so, so, and he'll also challenge his students, lectures to my students, don't bring politics into the pulpit. Now, that said, he does in other environments uh, convey his opinion about certain political issues, sure. and I share mm-hmm. about that in the book. Uh, so he has The Sword and the Trowel, his monthly magazine. And in there, he will sometimes speak to political issues. But again, it's pretty rare. Um, I think the thing people in our context would be surprised by is that Spurgeon is pretty public about his vote. So he identifies oh. with the liberal party. Don't think like American liberalism. Liberal. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, the Whig party, more or yeah. less, in, in uh, England. Uh, so he will, he will say who he's going to vote for. He would encourage others to vote for these particular candidates. Mm. So, but he's not doing that from the pulpit. Uh, he'll do that in letters. He'll do that in private exchanges, that kind of thing. Occasionally in a article in Sword in the Trowel. But no, he was not a political preacher at all. I don't think his people tried to make him out to be kind of like Jerry Falwell or mm-hmm. something like that, or even a Billy Graham who got very involved with politics, and that's just not who Spurgeon is. Mm. Um, but there's work to be done there and a conversation to be had there for sure. Would we categorize a lot of his preaching as politics because you think here – in our 21st century America, there is the church doesn't belong in the state. And so there's almost kind of like what he said, they're, they're coming into our turf. So do you think yeah. people would hear what he said and categorize that as a political I think, sermon? I think if people took a volume of the sort of, the, or if volume of the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit from the 1880s, I think they'd be surprised by how little mm-hmm. uh, politics comes up. And I think, I think most preachers today speak more about politics than Spurgeon sure. did. He mm. guarded the pulpit pretty well, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Very, very well. Yeah. yeah. You can read whole volumes and it never comes Absolutely. up. Yeah. yeah. I, so may, maybe it's not worth going into more, but what more what I was thinking is how people will think of abortion and think of um, sexual preferences and all these things that people would categorize as those are sure. political issues, well, yeah. our rights and how we want to be identified. That I guess that's more or less what I was trying well, our, to... Our, yeah, now I'm just speaking, let me take the scholar hat off and put the pastor hat on. Our context, I think, forces us to speak to more issues that are regarded as political mm-hmm. because... In truth, they're not fundamentally political issues. They're fundamental anthropology issues, human issues, Christian issues. Mm. So if we're talking about LGBTQ issues or abortion issues, that's just what we need to do. We're not doing that because we're fascinated with politics. We're doing that because we care for the poor and the oppressed and the afflicted. We're doing it because we care about 
image of God issues in man mm. and gender issues and families and things like that. So I do think if Spurgeon were around today, he would be speaking to those issues, but he'd defend it by saying, the Bible calls me to speak to these issues. Right. It's not like I just you know, put my finger to the air and decided <laughs> I want to you know, talk about what's being talked about on the news. You know? So he would sometimes, like for example, there were a couple of wars he felt were quite unjust mm. that he would even say were, were, had, had, were, were wicked in their origins. Mm. And he spoke against those. Of course, the slavery issue, um, a couple other things along the way, but for the most part, it would have to be a big moral question or a moral mm, issue sure. that would Good. get him to speak to it. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Why don't you tell us as we wrap up, um, are you working on any projects? Um, oh. Anything else you're excited about right now for Spurgeon? And then maybe somebody who's listening that's just like, yeah, I know, I know who Spurgeon is, but like, would you encourage... Um, people to really dive in and get to know this man mm-hmm. uh, for any particular reason. Yeah, just sort of close Absolutely. up with a little wrap-up. If, if you're wanting to get into Spurgeon, I would just say pick any one volume, pick any year. I, I would I would prefer the 1870s or 80s myself, mm-hmm. but pick any year of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, any volume, just start reading his sermons. Yeah. So full of Christ. Yeah. Um, so full of grace. Such an honest look at sin. and mm. um, Oh, it's just wonderful. Yeah. Uh, things I'm working on that I'm excited about. I just completed the manuscript for uh, a popular biography of Spurgeon. It's okay. about 90,000 words, maybe 250 pages. I'm hoping it'll become a standard kind of introduction to his life. Wonderful. Uh, it is, again, aimed at the church. It's not a scholarly biography, so I'm trying to draw even life lessons yeah. and you know, kind of things along the way. So that'll be with Reformation Heritage. should come out late 2024. I think if they keep the title I proposed, it'll just be Spurgeon A Life. Cool. Um, not especially imaginative with my titles. Right, right. <laughs> and then I'm working on a more scholarly thing. If you have folks listening who are interested in, in more scholarly work on Spurgeon, Jeff Chang and I have teamed up uh, to prepare a larger edited volume kind of on Spurgeon's theology, yeah. his historical context, his ministry. Mm. Uh, pulled together, oh, what, maybe 18 or so kind of leading thinkers on Spurgeon, Wonderful. guys who did their dissertation on Spurgeon guys who've published things on Spurgeon, mm-hmm. thrilled by the team we put together. Um, and we just basically finished that manuscript. David Bevington's writing the foreword for that. Wow. Um, and so that's with B&H. That will come out, I think, early 2025. Okay. And um, so, yeah, that's that's some ways off, but um, mostly finished up now. And that's awesome, man. Yeah, looking forward I'm to those. Looking forward to those, yeah. Well, we can hear the people talking down in the room there, and yeah, the sure. session's about to start. So, um, But we... Alex, really appreciate you coming. Guys, Thanks it's a for, privilege. This has been a uh, pleasure. I hope people Thank go you. get the book. It's on Amazon and, of course, on the Heritage website. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back on season two once you're, maybe some of these projects go get out there. And we can Love it, talk man. about some of those, these other books. And, uh, and let me just say I appreciate what you guys are doing and trying to shine a light on yeah. Spurgeon and to expose more people to his life, especially church folks. It's I mean, a lot of fun, it's man. always great when guys want to go study him on a, a, a scholarly level. But to have more people interested in the life and ministry of this great man, I think um, I think he's pushing us to Christ, and so it's only good that we look at him and, and hold him up. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Appreciate Very that. Very good. Well, appreciate appreciate you being with us, man. Thanks, have brother. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Yeah, thank you guys. All Hope right. you enjoy it, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>